Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. People may know the nation of Qatar for its international airline, Qatar Airwaves, or its international news station, Al Jazeera. But recently, an alleged fake news story has caused several nations to cut political and economic ties with the small yet wealthy nation. On today's show, we'll dig deeper into the recent tensions that led to the embargo, talk about news network Al Jazeera's role in the region, and what a new media and communication building there is offering journalism students. Here to discuss these issues is Dr. Everett Dennis, the dean and CEO of Northwestern University in Qatar. Welcome, Dr. Dennis. Thank you very much, Robin. Can we start with... With uh, the fact that recently five Arab nations cut diplomatic ties with Qatar over what turned out to be fake news or a fake news report. Can you explain exactly well, what yes, happened? Yes, this was on uh, June 5th of this year, 2017, and it was more than the uh, fake news. And that was sort of the uh, beginning of it, but there were a number of other factors. But there have been longstanding disputes between Qatar and some of its neighbors, namely Saudi Arabia and uh, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Bahrain, and then not really a neighbor across the way, Egypt. In early June, there was a news story that appeared on the Qatar News Agency site, which is a sort of like an Associated Press, but it's run by the country, uh, alleging that uh, the Emir of Qatar had made a number of provocative remarks about these neighboring states and had talked about the relations with Iran and, and some other issues. And almost immediately, the Qataris denounced the report and said it had been hacked into the site and was not their material. The other nations, however, uh, differed, said that it did reflect their views. And uh, shortly after that, as a result of a lot of other things, President Trump's meeting in the Middle East, uh, some other uh, disputes going on, uh, they did break diplomatic relations with Qatar uh, and set up a blockade, which uh, blocked um, uh, air travel in and out of the country, or not so much to their countries, uh, some food chain issues and some other kinds of things. So quite a um, crisis. And for us in Qatar, as one of uh, six American schools and two international schools there, it was immediate concern, of course, as to whether we continued. Our summer session was well underway. We had our high school programs going on. And so we had to monitor this situation very carefully. Subsequently, uh, unrelated to us, the U.S. State Department and our intelligence agencies have confirmed that that new original news report was uh, so-called fake news. It was a fabricated story. The other countries still deny that. So what does uh, the Arab neighbors want Qatar to do to, in order to have the embargo lifted? Well, it's not clear now. They originally wanted the, shut, the shuttering of Al Jazeera. They wanted some regular monitoring of, of financial reports and, and an allegation of uh, terrorist support, which the Qataris uh, signed an agreement with the U.S. saying that was not going on. As a U.S. State Department report that said Qatar is very good on this subject. So the, the specifics of what they want isn't really clear. I, you know, it's... Uh, you could ask anyone and get different reasons. The countries are somewhat jealous of each other. Qatar has enormous wealth. The other countries do not like Qatar's in-your-face, punch-above-your-weight foreign policy. No question about that. They prefer a quieter voice, and that's not in Qatar's nature or its history. So hard to say. I think all, both sides need to save face at this point, find some way to resolve this, and, and no doubt they will over, over the months ahead. The result now, as far as effect on us or people in Qatar is some inconvenience in travel. Uh, the food shortages are now gone. They were very short-lived. And uh, some other uh, cost factors that will no doubt, through the shipping and things, will be more. But it's hard to say beyond that. As you may know, uh, the, the largest military base in the region 
uh, our U.S. base is, is in Qatar, and, and it's uh, and of course it's the site of the 2022 World Cup. So for a little place, it's got a high profile. And then some people said one of the reasons for the hacking was to sort of try to draw a wedge between Qatar and and the U.S., which is not happening, obviously, because the FBI has said that they don't believe that Qatar actually said or did anything wrong. Well, and the the question is, uh, you know, who claims what and who we want to believe. Uh, the foreign ministers of the two countries, uh, the UAE and Qatar, have, have kind of a running debate recently and making charges and countercharges. But it's kind of quieting down somewhat, and we hope that we hope it will. They'll solve their problems. Of course, we're not there to solve their problems, but it's a fascinating thing to observe, and one has to be aware of it in terms of our own uh, uh, ability to keep our students and faculty and staff uh, healthy, safe, and secure, which is a you know our our principal concern and. So it, at the moment, it's had a, a minor impact, and we will we watch it carefully. We have a number of working groups on our home campus in Evanston, Illinois, and in Cutter and elsewhere, uh, providing us with regular intelligence. So we kind of know what's going on, and we have many plans uh, for for risk management and uh, alert levels if anything were to occur. So it's the kind of thing that any university will find with overseas programs is that you will always be need to be very well aware of the geopolitics of the region where you are. Something can happen almost any moment, uh, unexpectedly, and then one you know, has to be responsive to it. And in our case, we've had long plans uh, considering all kinds of emergency possibilities that could happen when you're in a region like that. You could have a failure of the electrical grid. You could have a natural disaster, all kinds of things that anybody needs to plan for. And when you're overseas and you're 7,000 miles from your home base, it's very important to be on top of it. And we've had a lot of help from our, our leadership uh, and uh, in making this uh, a smooth uh, operation. So we're on top of our game and watching the back of all of our people. Does anyone know uh, who actually hacked the news agency and planted the fake news stories? Well, not that I'm aware of. I, not I don't, yet, huh? I don't know. I mean, perhaps the intelligence agencies know how it happened, but they they accused the UAE of doing it. But who in the UAE? I, I don't know. There had been an information war going on there, kind of a PR war uh, earlier, uh, and there were allegations that different PR agencies hired by the different countries were trying to discredit the others. And one regrettable thing that happened during this was that if people in the UAE were caught tweeting or saying anything positive about Qatar, that could give them up to a 15-year jail sentence. So uh, that has not been enforced, but it was one, it was a blustery charge. So, uh, Dr. Dennis, how did the news network Al Jazeera factor into the tensions between Qatar and these other nations? Well, it was one of the points that the other countries uh, raised, and uh, it has been highly controversial because on the, it, it uh, both its English and its Arab channels, because they, in fact, cover the news across the region, and uh, they have been accused of uh, conspiring with terrorists and giving uh, support to the Muslim Brotherhood. They deny it, uh, and uh, I think most people find that Al Jazeera is a pretty credible source. The Arab channel is more opinionated. It'd be more like one of our cable channels with an ideological uh, bent. But the complaint is essentially that people don't want to hear negative news. Uh, and so one of the complaints the other day of the UAE uh, foreign minister was that if you publicize uh, you know, well-known terrorists, you give them, you empower them and make them stronger and, and give them, uh, uh, you know, an influence that they wouldn't have otherwise. Well, yes, I suppose that's true. If you cover a criminal, uh, they get to be better known and they become famous. Uh, if we hadn't covered in the Western media or elsewhere Osama bin Laden, he would have simply been an obscure, faceless 
individual, uh, and uh, I don't think that would have served anyone well. So there is a conflict there between uh, some leadership in the region that just doesn't want to see uh, the kind of investigative and tough-minded coverage that Al Jazeera has uh, actually been doing. Have uh, any of your students at Northwestern University in Qatar, have they used this situation to uh, maybe develop news stories? Yes, they're writing reports. Uh, we were Most of them were gone for the summer, but some of the summer session students did, and I'm hearing from others. They're writing about the impact on Education City, where we are, and, and uh, they produced some other stories, uh, both in local media there and in media in the U.S. as well. So they, they don't miss an opportunity to, to cover news, and it was happening right in their face, and we're right in the, in the middle of a, a geopolitical crisis, and uh, not one that we like to see coming, but it's an, it is a, a laboratory. It's a case study for our, our folks to cover and, and examine, for sure. I want to take a look at national news, or international news, I should say. So what U.S. news stories are making headlines in Qatar? Well, almost anything about Donald Trump. There's a fascination with President Trump and what he's doing. Uh, there's certainly an interest in the persistent Russian story. Uh, there's a lot of interest in stories about immigration. And, of course, the, um, the travel ban of some months ago, still controversial, is one that has uh, you know, attracted a lot of attention. I, I would say uh, those are the, the kind of things. And otherwise, people like they're very interested in U.S. sports and popular culture and all the same kinds of things that people are interested in here. And, Dr. Dennis, what differences are there between how the U.S. portrays uh, these issues and how the Middle East portrays them? Or is there any difference? Well, there's not very much difference. Uh, sometimes you'll, you'll see a, a publication that will put it in the form of a conspiracy theory of some kind. But for the most part, people are using some of the same international sources, uh, the Associated Press or the Washington Post and the New York Times uh, are, are very influential everywhere in the world. Some of the columnists who are in the Middle East and, and have an uh, exposure over here as well, which is Rami Corey, who's the former editor of the Beirut Star and who writes uh, very persuasively and kind of interpreting the nature of the region and its characteristics with, uh, you know, what's going on. And that, that provides a perspective and a background that very few U.S. media outlets would have. And there are other, there are other wonderful, thoughtful columnists, commentators, even some think tanks in the region that are uh, trying to make sense out of all this. Now, how does the way news outlets in both the U.S. and Middle East compare with the actual issues that people are dealing with in the Middle East? Um, there's been a lot of interest in airlines, of course. You mentioned earlier Qatar Airways, a very fine airline, uh, and the ability to fly different places with the closure of airspace in the blockaded countries kind of thing. But uh, most of uh, the local local news tends to be the things that affect most people in their daily lives. And it's, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's very, very localized. And people, they know about the international uh, issues, of course, the global trends, and they want to be part of that. But for the most part, it's what's happening in my city, a town, and, and uh, uh, it has to do with uh, schools and, um, ta- uh, and uh, uh, you know, uh, pricing of, of uh, foodstuffs and that kind of thing. Those are the issues that are, are, yeah. are considered top in Qatar? Real, well, the bread and butter issues, yeah, for sure. Could you be a little bit more specific about the bread and butter issues that are topping the important issues in Qatar, in well, the news in uh, Qatar? One of the things, of course, is uh, food supply and, and uh, basically food safety and food supply in a country that brings in, I think, 90% of its food from other places. 
that's a big deal. And so if there's a blockage at the Saudi border and you, chicken doesn't come in, people are talking about not, you know, being hungry for chicken. They don't get it. And they're, or if, when the milk used to come from Saudi and now comes from Turkey, people talk about, well, it tastes a little different uh, and they're adjusting to uh, some other kinds of products. And um, in this country, we've had some issues with freedom of the press. Does freedom of the press, you know, legal protections for journalists, have mm. the same meaning in Qatar as it does in the U.S.? Well, not really. There there are some press laws that are really uh, robust and, and uh, speak to a media freedom. There are also some aspects of the local law, such as the criminalization of libel. Uh, people go to jail for something. In this country, you would lose a, a case and pay a fine. So there's not a complete freedom of expression. No one would claim that. But it's stronger and it's better and it's growing more so than was true a few years ago. And one of the things that has come up during the blockade was a strong support for media freedom on the part of the Qatari leadership because they feel that the closure of Al Jazeera, if that were to happen, would be a direct assault on free expression and, uh, you know, shutting down a, a critical news and information source. And so they've, they've been more robust in talking about media freedom issues than ever before that I can recall, and it really is a result of that. That may have a long-term positive impact, but freedom of expression is always in play everywhere in the world, and there certainly are, are laws that are somewhat draconian there. There's a, there's a cyber crime law across most of the Middle East, which makes it difficult for people using social media to say anything that a government might disagree with. Now, there's been relatively little prosecution of that, but it always could be once you put laws like that on the books. And so we watch those kinds of things. Our students are steeped in this. They get required courses in media law and regulation. We run seminars, which we call Safe Passage, because we want people to be safe, because it's not the same as news coverage in the U.S. There, are, there always are uh, possible um, challenges, and we want to be ready for that. And that's one of the reasons we're there, is to help promote uh, a freer and more open environment. And the Cutteries have invited us there, uh, you know, largely for that purpose. And they understand that change comes hard sometimes, and sometimes there are bumps along the way, and we've seen those bumps, but also uh, we've seen great progress. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon, talking with Dr. Everett Dennis, Dean and CEO of Northwestern University in Qatar. We're discussing the fake news story that led to an embargo of Qatar, the role news network Al Jazeera serves in the region, and we're discussing what a new media and communication building is offering journalism students. Dr. Dennis, NUQ recently dedicated its new media and communication building on its campus in yes. Qatar. So can you describe what this new building looks like? Well, it is a remarkable building. It looks first like a giant a desert fortress. It has uh, large stones along the outside. The top of it's shaped like two Arab swords, uh, what we call a safe tip, a pointed tip at the beginning of the building. Uh, the outside is this... Uh, uh, you know, stunning and, and chiseled sandstone. And then uh, inside, almost all glass looking out on various courtyards. The building has the infrastructure of a modern television network. It has the infrastructure of a Hollywood studio. It's got black box theaters. It will soon have a museum. It's got a 
model state-of-the-art robotic newsroom and a great deal more. And then obviously classrooms, offices, auditoriums. We have a, uh, a cinema with Dolby surround sound. It's a wonderful uh, uh, space, and our architect, uh, Antoine Predock, talks about it as an instrument to be played, and his challenge to us is, okay, don't just do business as usual there, can't you be really creative? And so we're spending a lot of time thinking not just about the building, but what we do there, how we teach, how we use this wonderful, wonderful resource, and we, we're very privileged to have it. Uh, it's taken it was six years in the making, and it may be the largest facility of its kind in the world. It's 515,000 square feet, which is huge, uh, and we will be able to do some graduate programs, a lot of community activities. We intend to have lots of guests and visitors and, and programs for the public there, but also use our telecommunication facilities to communicate out to the rest of the world. The building has a three-story high video wall in its atrium, and it's got a similar uh, kind of facility uh, a wall on the outside of the building, which can be used for all kinds of programming and signage. So it really is a truly uh, spectacular space. And it's, it's uh, you know, we're humbled to have this kind of space. And Dr. Dennis, you said that the architect created this fortress with yeah. swords. So what inspired the architect to create this kind of building? Well, he thought first, um, he talked about it as uh, an environment that is nasty. Nasty meaning a rough element. You know, you have to protect yourself against the wind and the sun oh. and the and the brutal brutality of the desert. And so he created this, in effect, great you know, shell, this uh, fortress. And yet inside, it's very humane. You look out under these wonderful courtyards. It's a lead uh, gold building, uh, environmentally uh, certified, and has grass on the, some of the roofs. Uh, it has wonderful garden courtyards that are adjacent to it. So it's a spectacular place. And... Uh, we just wish everybody in the world could come and visit it. There. So I'm sold. The next interview we do has got to be in this Absolutely. gorgeous you, you building yes. <laughs> that you we have. We have a wonderful radio studio. You'd love it. <laughs> in what way do you see this brand new facility maybe advancing or enhancing the education of the students? Well, uh, that's part of the, of the creative process. First, it gives us an opportunity to... Uh, to do a lot more um, broadcasting and, and telecasting uh, uh, and, and to certain kinds of digital uh, news gathering operations that we didn't have before. We had some facilities in a small studio before, but it's expanded our capacity. Uh, so, you know, we can do that. We, we, our people do a lot of both documentary and narrative films, and we have the facilities there to do that with. We can also do uh, live performances of various kinds, and we will, and we have already more of that. Uh, and uh, we want it to be an asset and resource for the for our university and the others there and the country. It's going to be a, uh, I hope we hope a destination for people to come and use and not just not, you know, a monastic enclave that hides from the world. This is very much uh, reaching out. In spite of the big walls on the outside, it's a, it's an open place to come and visit. So, Dr. Dennis, can you talk to me a little bit about your journalism residency program? Yes, this is a program that was in, really developed at the Medill School of Journalism in Northwestern University. It, uh, it's called a, a JR, Journalism Residency, and it's a 10-week, very rigorous uh, internship, but it's one that's very focused. It's pr that people prepare for it well in advance, and the students are placed all over the world. They have We've had students in the last year at the Washington Post, USA Today, the Boston Globe, Vice Media, in New York, uh, in Brooklyn, and uh, a number of other uh, outlets, about 20-some uh, students do this every year. All of our journalism juniors over a period of time will, will do this. And it, they, while they're there, they oftentimes, on day one, 
they're producing stories. We've had uh, people publishing the, on the Washington Post website, and USA Today, Scientific American, and um, places like um, uh, the National Geographic, I should say, uh, where they played a, a serious role right away. So they, they came in uh, with a lot of expertise and uh, ability to work, and they have great digital skills. And so the, the, it isn't just watching other people work. It's, it's jumping in and doing it right away. And we've had wonderful reports from uh, the supervisors of these students around the world. Our, our faculty come out and meet with them as well. And we think it's just a, a very fabulous and focused uh, professional experience program that's very strong. And it does, it, it, it borrows many ideas from our home campus in, in Evanston, Illinois, and there are other internship programs that other schools have as well, I'm sure. So uh, I know Fordham has a number of really great internship programs in New York City. So uh, we learn from everybody and try to apply it. Dr. Dennis, do most of the students at uh, Northwestern University in Qatar, when they're trained, do they want to stay in Qatar or do they want to travel around the world to work? Well, as journalists. it's a mixture. Uh, a good many stay right there. The, the, it, getting a job on Al Jazeera or one of the digital companies or in a magazine group is considered attractive. Also, there are communications and PR firms. There are sports media operations. A lot of things there that are that, that are attractive jobs. Another uh, contingent of our students want to go to graduate school. And in our first four classes, 34% went to graduate schools in England, the United States, and the best schools around. And, and it's just... Uh, that's very gratifying. And then some uh, really want to work other places. We have people in Thailand and China who uh, come, come back to the U.S. and elsewhere. So we think they're, globe, they're trained in a way that they can work anywhere on the, in the globe, uh, on the globe and, and uh, uh, in, the, in the world. And that's, uh, that's a very gratifying thing. It's, uh, they, they are really very uh, capable of doing this. And our, our curriculum points toward that. We're not uh, nationalistic or ethnocentric. We try to be very broad-based in terms of assuming that a student might go anywhere. Even if we teach them the law, we teach them not only U.S. constitutional law, but the civil code, which is common across the Middle East, local laws and regulations, knowing that wherever you are in the world, you have to navigate the legal system, some places more overtly than others. Some places, it just you know, you just kind of blend in. Other places, you worry about it every day. And so that's the kind of thing we give our students. Um, it seems that here in the U.S., um, uh, the future of journalism is leaning heavily towards online content. You mentioned that uh, your students are also learning online content. But is this done in the same way um, at, for the students at NUQ as it is here, that it's heavily, heavily, uh, the future of journalism seems heavily uh, geared towards online content. Oh, yes. It's multimedia journalism yeah. and, and uh, where people not only write, but they uh, they do podcasts, they, uh, they record interviews. Podcasts they, a big thing here, too. And they do, uh, you know, video material and they do still photography. So all of the... Uh, the uh, Ways that you t it's pretty storytelling you know, on a, in a on a digital scale and I suspect most people will do most of their work uh, in the digital realm and, and less so in the in traditional um, legacy media the traditional newspaper or magazine for example. Are there any courses at NUQ that you think? Are not here at most journalism universities in the United States and would and we would benefit from having them. Well, we've done some experimental things, some of our digital work that uh, I don't suppose is unique in the world. What we do, though, is uh, we use our region 
uh, as a template for learning. So our students get a very big dose of Middle East studies. They often do a minor in Middle East studies or, or they do a, um, uh, a certificate program. They also are heavily into research, and uh, our research is well-funded, so the students will maybe do uh, you know, humanistic or social scientific research or studies of everything from media laws to uh, uh, gender issues and other kinds of things and then publish it both in scholarly venues uh, and in popular places, in, in, uh, in the popular media as well. So I think that's one aspect. But we try to create the best of uh, international practices in journalism and media and, and communication uh, with, we say, an Arab accent. It would be cognizant of the local community, relevant to the local community. And we try to think in those terms of, of economic development and environmental developments and things like that that students can write about and engage with. And so the country has a, a national plan for the future, the 2030 plan, and that really focuses on projecting a future where Qatar is trying to transform itself uh, from a carbon-based society and economy to a, a knowledge-based economy. And, and for the students, that's, again, a laboratory for learning. Now, uh, here in the States, Dr. Dennis, ethical fact based journalism has uh, had its um, run-ins, should I say, with uh, certain lawmakers. Or, uh, there's been a debate between, you know, fact-based journalism and other types of journalism. Um, are you finding the same kind of discussions happening uh, at NUQ? Oh, yes. Uh, when I was leaving uh, a few weeks ago, I walked by a classroom on the board. There's a said fake news. And that, that obviously <laughs> had been the discussion of, of the day. Right. And I think it's worth uh, talking about that, the verification of, of news and information, recognizing, and of course in Qatar it's, it's interesting because there has been this information war between different countries and different interests where they have pipe news and, uh, and reports that were inaccurate. But I think it's a challenge everywhere in the world to find reliable, reputable information and to also recognize that there are mischievous characters of different persuasions out in the world that will deliberately uh, mislead and, and do this. And that's really not new. Uh, there have been hoaxes in, in media for, from the beginning of time, I suppose, but it's pretty acute now. I think it comes kind of a political instrument, and it's a, it's a tough one to watch, but, it, but it's something people need to learn about and be aware of. It's just the latest uh, faddish term for what has, I think, always been a concern, but it's just... Uh, Heightened now, I think, by uh, the Internet and by the speed with which things move and the desire to have, you know, instantaneous news stories breaking every couple of minutes. And that's pretty hard to do. And I think that's led to some uh, some sort of sloppy developments. Our uh, students and our faculty are very concerned about being rigorous in, in finding facts. And we always liked uh, uh, the late Senator Moynihan's uh, admonition that, that uh, you're entitled to uh, uh, to your own opinions, but you're not entitled to create your own facts. Right, and, uh, exactly. And uh, so we think that's, that's very important. Yeah, recently in uh, one class that I, I was teaching, we had a, a very rigorous conversation about should news be fast and first or should you mm. worry about being accurate? Yeah. And we got, surprisingly, I, w I thought people would lean towards be accurate, but there were discussions as to why you need to be fast and first. And it was a, it was an interesting conversation to, uh, to get involved in. We didn't come up with any 
type of <laughs> final discussion or decision on that one, but it was if, something that started. If you do, let me know. Yeah, I will. I will. Dr. Dennis, you were recently elected into the American mm. Academy of Arts and Science. How did that feel? Well, it was very humbling, and I didn't know that was going to happen. And it, <laughs> uh, It's a wonderful um, uh, honor, and I'm looking forward to going to Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts in October for the induction ceremony and uh, meet the fellow uh, 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 people who were elected uh, this year. But it's a it's a wonderful um, honor. And uh, so, okay, I'm going to ask you to pat yourself on the back a little bit. Share with my audience why uh, they they elected you. Well, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I assume that uh, I've had a, I've had a long and career in institution building right. uh, and creating new programs at. Uh, in a number of places. Uh, you were stable here at Fordham? I was here at Fordham for uh, 14 years and wonderful experiences here at Columbia and other places and involved in the creation of the American Academy in Berlin. Uh, and along the way, I think uh, I've been a privilege to be able to do scholarship and work on books and solve problems. And uh, uh, I try to uh, bring about uh, some elevation and improvement in media. That's been one of my lifetime goals. And and to the extent that I've contributed to that, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I hope I have. Okay. Thank you so much. Congratulations. Thank you. And thank you for, for uh, showing up today and uh, taking part in this interview. You are always, always a friend of Fordham Conversations. Thank you very much, Robin. <laughs> I, I feel the same way. I'd like to thank my guest, Dean Everett Dennis. I'd also like to thank my producer, Marina Koff. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon.